name is Dr. Chayaliba Kobernek, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Mindful Woman Mothers podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and a mother to four delicious girls. Here, we'll explore what it means to be a mindful woman through every stage of motherhood. Welcome on today's podcast. I'm excited to be speaking with Nancy Wayner. Nancy is a certified professional midwife who attends home births and who has been present at over 2,100 births. She trains student midwives, teaches childbirth classes, is the author of two and soon to be three books on birth in the USA. She coined the term VBAC and her work is being archived at Harvard University Schlesinger Women's History Library. She was selected as one of Mothering Magazine's Living Treasures, and I am so excited for us to be chatting today. So let's start with the obvious, Nancy. How did you come to pioneering the term VBAC? Can you give us a little bit of history as to where that came from? Well, I don't know how much time you have. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Well, if anybody had ever told me, first of all, that I would be a midwife, I would have told them they were crazy. When I was in high school, I joined the Future Nurses of America Club. And we went to our first meeting and I fainted when I saw someone give somebody a shot. So, (laughs) um, but then years later, I had our first baby. And although I was so happy to be a mother and so delighted that I had a beautiful, healthy baby, I had a miserable birth. And I was left feeling let down and betrayed and angry and confused and frustrated and sad. And so I decided I was going to find out everything I could possibly find out about birth so that I wouldn't have that kind of an experience again, if possible. And in those days, there was no internet, there were no cell phones, I had to sneak into medical libraries. And I actually mean sneak into medical libraries, because I wasn't going to any of the schools, I wasn't a student, etc. And um, what I determined over time was that my C-section was most likely preventable, And that I assumed that if mine was preventable, that probably many of them were preventable. When a C-section is necessary, it's life-giving and life-saving. And I am so grateful and respectful for the hours and the days and the time that was spent learning how to do them. But so many times I find now that they're totally unnecessary. They definitely could be prevented. And whenever possible, they should be prevented. So um, I learned everything I could. And then I interviewed 18 doctors who all told me that I would die if I dared to try to have a normal delivery. But what I had found out is that in Europe, if a woman had a C-section, she automatically had a normal delivery the next time around even when that baby was larger than the baby for whom she had been sectioned. And so finally, on the 19th try, I found a doctor who said, well, we'll give it a shot. And that's all I needed to hear was that I was going to be given the opportunity. Um, I did have a vaginal birth. And as far as we know, it was the first planned vaginal birth in the United States in many, many, many years. I sent out letters. I called radio programs, I called television programs, and I found one woman in Texas, I lived in Massachusetts at the time, I still do actually, and I found one woman who had had a vaginal birth after a cesarean, and I couldn't wait to be in touch with her, and I was finally in touch with her through a series of many events, and she said, yes, I did have a vaginal birth, she said, but I was actually scheduled to have a c-section the next day and i went into labor and i had such a fast labor that they really couldn't do anything except watch me birth my baby but it wasn't planned so i'm pretty sure that i had um, one of the first if not the first planned vaginal birth and i would like to tell you that it was a wonderful birth but it wasn't it was not a c-section so it was definitely an improvement over my c-section but it was um strangers, bright lights, 
Um, the baby was taken away from me. The cord was cut right away. I wasn't given any food during labor. I wasn't given any support. At one point during the labor, I think I had 15 people in the room. They were all residents and students who had come to see this crazy woman who thought maybe she could have a vaginal birth after C-section. I think they were waiting for my uterus to rupture and I'm sorry that I disappointed them, but my uterus was fine, thank goodness. But what was also interesting is that I had wanted a friend at my birth and they had said that there would be no room for my friend. So it wasn't a fabulous birth. And in fact, the baby was taken away. My daughter was taken away from me for many hours for no good reason. So I was left feeling like I had no reason to be depressed because I had had a what became VBAC. But on the other hand, it was another miserable, miserable birth. And um, everybody around me said, you have a healthy baby and, you know, what else do you want? And in some respects, Chaya, that's true. My sister had 11 pregnancies and she has no biological children. Um, she uh, was a DES daughter. My mother had taken a, had been given a drug called diethylbestrol, which was supposed to prevent miscarriages and it didn't prevent miscarriages. What it did instead was it caused reproductive failure in the children whose mothers did get pregnant. And so I, I was left feeling like, you know, I have no right to be depressed, but I'm depressed, I'm sad. I want the experience of giving birth, you know, differently. When um, I had a miscarriage, and then uh, became pregnant with our third child. Uh, and um, I announced that I was staying home, that I wasn't going into the hospital to have this baby. Now, remember, this was a very long time ago, decades ago. And everybody said, you're crazy, you're nuts, you know, you're going to die, your baby's going to die. I had heard that before. And um, I just wasn't going back into the hospital. I found a midwife after uh, interviewing many, many midwives. I found a midwife and um, we were all set to go. And two weeks before my due date, probably 10 days, she called me and she said to me, I can't come to your birth. And I said, why not? And she said, because some of the other midwives have just recently found out that I'm coming to a VBAC. Uh, and she said, um, it's, they just don't want me to be there. They think it's too dangerous. And I said, it's not really a VBAC technically because I had a vaginal birth. So it's really a vaginal birth after a vaginal birth. Maybe that's a VBAV. And so lo and behold, um, I had no midwife. And what happened next is a miracle that maybe at the end of this podcast we can talk about because it was pretty amazing what happened. I did eventually have a midwife at my birth and how she got to be at my birth was quite outstanding. But anyway, um, I did have a birth at home. And it was beautiful. It was peaceful. It was lovely. Um, nobody yelled at me. Nobody told me where I could sit and where I could stand and what I could eat and what I couldn't. And it was just it was just lovely. And so in those moments, when my daughter was born, I feel like perhaps the midwife inside of me was born. Because I thought it took me three to get it right. And I don't want it to take other women that long to finally get the birth that feels really secure and peaceful and sweet and empowering, et cetera, et cetera. And so I decided I was going to become a midwife. And I thought it would take, you know, a year or two or three. And it took me about 12 or 14 because I was raising three children who were young at the time. And so it was not easy to take all the classes and to get the experience being at birth. Um, and so that was some time ago. But in terms of how VBAC came to be is that I was writing um, with a Lois Esner. I was writing Silent Knife and then Open Season. And I kept writing Vaginal Birth After Cesarean, Vaginal Birth After Cesarean. Then it became Vag B A F C E S. And finally, it was just VBAC. And as I, I've said to many people, if I had known that VBAC was going to kind of take root all over the world, I would have come up with something really spectacular and fun and sweet and, and wonderful sounding to the ears. But it caught on before I had a chance to kind of take a step back and make a change. Um, Lynn Richards, one of my colleagues who's written uh, books on VBAC as well, she calls it very beautiful and courageous. And I think that's really a lot nicer, but it's a lot of words to say as well. 
So, yeah, so I've been to a probably now at this point, 2,500 births, lots of VBACs. Um, one woman who had a VBAC with me had an 11-pound, one-ounce baby, even though she had been in New York beforehand and had been told that she was too small to birth any baby over about seven and a half or eight pounds. And what's so important for women to know is that the size of the baby doesn't make any difference at all in many respects. And what I mean by that is that you can have an 11 pound baby, number one, that has the same head circumference as an eight pound baby. The only reason that the baby weighs 11 pounds is that the baby is, you know, chunky. Yeah, long and chunky and chubby. And we don't care about the chubby stuff because it squishes. The most important one of the most important things besides nutrition and relaxation and support, et cetera, one of the most important things is head position. And in this country, in my country, nobody pays any attention. To, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people pay attention. I would much rather have a 10 or 11 pound baby whose head is in position than a seven and a half or eight pound baby, or even a six pound baby whose head is out of position, because that means that the largest part of the baby's head is presenting. It's the part of the baby's head that doesn't mold as easily. So we pay very close attention to the position of the baby at about 27 to 30 weeks, we start to pay more attention on the outside to where the baby likes to hang out. And if the baby seems to be hanging out on the mommy's right side, we say nothing at all. But if the baby seems to be either on the, excuse me, we like it when the baby's on the left side. <laughs> um, and if the baby's hanging out on the mama's left side at the end of the pregnancy, we don't say a word. But if the baby's hanging out on the, with the back on the right side, or if the baby is posterior, we give the mama exercises to do. And even before that, we tell the mother, first of all, do not cross your legs. Not that it's easy to cross your legs when you're nine months pregnant, but when you're two or three or four months pregnant, you're still crossing your legs. Don't cross your legs. Don't lean back. Make sure you're sitting completely straight. Um, and... Um, you know, lean forward whenever you can. We tell them not to drink milk. We give them all kinds of different um, recommendations and suggestions so that we can do everything we can to influence the baby. Ultimately, babies are going to choose the position that they like the best. So whether it'll depend on the shape of the mama, the shape of the baby, the size of the baby, the position of the placenta, the length of the umbilical cord. It, it, you know, and mamas always think they should sleep on their left side and they don't need to sleep on their left side. They need to sleep however they're comfortable. When they're comfortable, baby will get comfortable. So anyway, <laughs> aren't you glad you asked? Yes. <laughs> I told you I could talk about birth from now until next Monday without even taking a breath. <laughs> well, good news. Me too. <laughs> um, so so where do you see, and I know that you're, you're writing a new book, so that probably will come into here, but where do you see the VBAC movement today? Like what has changed since you started into this work to where we are now? And what do you see as like some of the current um, issues or problems that we're at? You know, I feel like there are seasons. I, there are just seasons. You know, VBAC was absolutely not allowed in my day. I had one doctor who said to me, um, he actually swore, and I won't swear on your podcast, I promise, but he said to me, um, over my dead body, will I ever allow a woman who's had a previous cesarean to have a normal delivery? That is insanity. And five years later, this doctor was touting himself as the VBAC, you know, obstetrician in the area. Um, so there have been a lot of, it's, it's like everything else, it's kind of fashionable at some point to attend VBACs and then it's not. One doctor that I spoke to not too long ago that we will be quoting in the book said, you know, Nancy, he said, why should a doctor sit around and wait for a woman to, you know, labor and push her baby out when we can do a C-section, we can be done in 45 minutes, you know, I can be home on the golf course. At least she was being honest with me. And he said, um, I don't really get what this big thing is about, you know, having a vaginal delivery. And certainly for some women, it's not a big deal. You know, let's just have a C-section. They have patient choice C-sections. But the more we learn about how important natural birth is, the more I want to help motivate women to do the very best they can to have 
a vaginal birth whenever possible. I always say your grandma had a vaginal birth and your great grandma and your great, 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 great grandma, they all had normal deliveries. And so if you're on the planet, most likely you come from really good stock. And I want you to really identify with those women who came before you who had normal deliveries. But the doctor also said to me, Chaya, he said to me, um, you know, Nancy, we don't, we can't lose when we do a C-section. He said, if we get a good baby, then nobody has anything to complain about. Nobody has anything to sue about. If we don't get a good baby, then it's a darn good thing that we, you know, reached in and, and did our best by getting that baby out and getting that baby onto the planet as quickly as we could. So we cannot lose if we do a C-section. And it's kind of a mentality that, you know, we are always fighting and facing and, and, and doing our best to educate. And sometimes it feels like an uphill battle, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But particularly on that, when you're, when, when insurance is, is more supportive of a C-section and billing is more supportive of a C-section and legislation is more supportive of C-section and lawyers are more supportive of the C-section than what is the motivation for a doctor to not do a C-section? That's right. And not just, and when you say legislation, I was on a legislative committee probably 25 or 30 years ago, maybe even more where we were doing our best to get um, midwives licensed and over a course of a few years, I stood back and I thought, you know what, we are not going to win if we get legislated. And although there are certainly a few advantages to legislation, most of the midwives who are now legislated are not happy because there are so many restrictions. So most of the midwives who worked so hard, so many hours tirelessly to get legislated so that they could... Um, have hospital privileges or uh, order ultrasounds or uh, give Pitocin without fearing that they might go to jail, you know, practicing medicine without a license, which is a whole other discussion because is birth medicine or is it not? Is it medical or is it not? But be that as it may, I stood back after a little time and I said, I don't want to be legislated because if I was, like the midwives who are in a state just north of me, I would not be able to attend VBACs. I would not be able to attend twins. I would not be able to attend breech babies. I would not be able to attend anybody whose baby was um, designated to be over eight and a half to nine pounds. I would not be able to attend anybody who was more than 10 days past her due date. So I'm very happy to be uh, living where we live, where I live now. And hopefully by the time they legislate here, I'll be retired and, uh, you know, reading books and taking my dog for a walk. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so why do you think this is even, we, we talked about why doctors overall don't care that much about, about, about repeat C-sections. But why do women care? Why do you think women care? I mean, you shared your own story. There was one story that I read from you in open season that really like stuck out to me um, of, a, of a woman you said who like heart, she like died from heartbreak after multiple C-sections. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's how you describe yeah. it. Well, it, I mean, she did have asthma. Um, and so, you know, on her death, you know, certificate, I'm sure it says something about some kind of pulmonary or, you know, but she said to me, if I have another C-section, Nancy, I think I will die. And uh, so that was very, very sad. That was, that was really tragic. Um, so the question is about why women care about having a VBAC. Well, I've gotten over a million letters um, in my lifetime from women and it varies from women saying that they don't feel like they are part of the human race, the, the female human race, because they can't give birth. People, women who really truly want to work with their bodies and feel um, um, their power and their strength and their participation, et cetera. Um, some women, it has to do with the fact that they don't want major surgery. They, they're scared of anesthesia or there's so many different reasons. 
my question is why there aren't more women who want to have normal vaginal births. The fear is so intense. And um, I remember going to my daughter's um, junior high school one day. I was asked to come and speak about my work. It was parent work day, or you know. <laughs> and even as 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds, they were terrified to give birth. And so I love it when we have children at births and when we have even teenagers at birth because they get to see that it's really very amazing. And uh, sometimes we have three or four little kids running in and out of the room, but it is so normal and natural. I always say if your puppy was having, if your dog was having puppies, <laughs> and it is a little bit different, no doubt about that. One woman that I was with, she, um, her, the birth center she was planning to birth at closed three days before her due date. And so she called me in a panic and she said, I don't really want a home birth, but I don't want to go to the hospital. And we talked for a little while and I said, I don't want to push you into a home birth. If you decide that you want to be at home, we'll talk, but you know, you get to decide. And um, she called me the next morning and she said, okay, we're going to have our baby at home. And I had to spend some time with her because home birth is not a default position. Home birth is a choice. It is a, a, a a way to live your life. It's a philosophy of living, so to speak. And um, she was frightened. And when she was upstairs in the bedroom, I noticed that when her children came into the room, she would say, mommy's fine. Mommy's fine. Mommy's fine. <laughs> and then when they would leave the room, she'd like fall apart like, oh, Nancy, this is really hard. I can't do this. I don't think I can do this. And then the children would come to the room and she'd say, mommy's fine. Mommy's fine. So we just kept the kids in the room. <laughs> and she had her baby. <laughs> mommy's fine. Mommy's fine. I said, mommy is fine. Mommy is just fine. She's just doing the work of giving birth. You know, it's like running a marathon. You know, a lot of people run marathons and they get to, you know, that last couple of miles and they think, I just can't do it. But they do it and they cross the finish line and they're so happy that they did or they're climbing a mountain and they get to the top of the mountain and the view on the top of the mountain is absolutely beautiful. And part of the reason it's beautiful is because this world is beautiful. And part of the reason it's beautiful is that they did the climb. They participated in the climb and they get to kind of, you know, pat themselves on the back and just kind of look at this magnificent world and feel magnificent about what they've just done. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So one woman just recently, very strange situation because she had her first baby with me and it was a beautiful, beautiful home birth, a 10 pound baby, uh, no stitches for the mom. And when I went to her house this last time, a couple months ago, we were all just really relaxed and excited that she was going to have her next baby. And a series of very strange things happened, which tells us that sometimes birth is unpredictable, et cetera. And she ended up in the hospital and she had a C-section, which surprised us all. And really, we're delighted that she's okay and that the baby's okay, but wasn't anything on our radar screen. And even though our antenna is always up, um, I just got a letter from her the other day. And um, it is, it's so beautiful that I probably can't tell you too much about it without crying, but it's lovely. And she basically said what many other women have said is that it didn't happen for me. And I'm really sad about that. And at the same time, your love and your patience and your support and your kindness and not just me, but the other midwife and, and, and the two student midwives that come with me to births. She said, I could not have asked for more love. And she said, I know that that in and of itself will help me to heal from this experience much more quickly and much more thoroughly than if it had been otherwise. And I understand what she's saying because it took me years to begin to feel like I could hold the experience of my unsupported and possibly unnecessary cesarean um, without feeling miserably horrible. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, we do the best we can, Chaya. That's all we can do. And then there are certain things that are not up to us. And, um, yeah, so we were very surprised at that birth. Very, very surprised, yeah. 
It sounds like you're saying that there, there are a lot of different reasons why women feel not great about their C-section, but. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just, you know, just the, um, the healing, just not being feeling as if they can't really make that um, commitment attachment um, with their baby because they are having to recover from major abdominal surgery. And it's the only surgery where before the surgery, there were probably X number of hours with no sleep and with labor. You know, most of the time when people go in for surgery, they've, you know, not been laboring for X number of hours with no food, et cetera. But there are many, many reasons. And, uh, and every one of them is valid for that particular woman, whatever she may feel, she may feel, and she's more than, you know, that's perfectly acceptable. And, you know, we have to meet women where they're at. Absolutely. Yeah. And from like a medical perspective, what, what are some of the problems with C-sections? Because I think, where the focus is usually on why C-sections are needed or quote unquote needed. Um, but what are some of the, and what can go wrong if you don't have a C-section, but what can go wrong if you do have a C-section? What are some of the medical problems of having C-section? Well, the risk of anesthesia alone, when I started researching that many, many years ago, the, I mean, we're, you know, obviously we wouldn't ask anybody to have a cesarean without anesthesia, but when you start to read some of the complications just from the anesthesia alone, um, that's enough to put hair on your chest. It's just, you know, uh, you know, and again, it's recovering from major abdominal surgery and sometimes there's injury to the bladder and, um, you know, hemorrhage and um, secondary infertility. I mean, there's just a, a myriad of things that, that can go wrong not only right at that moment with the mother, um, but we also know that cesarean babies are at a distinct disadvantage. Something that we didn't know years and years ago had to do with um, seeding the baby as the baby comes through the vagina, you know, with all of the really yummy things that go on down there. And, um, and uh, we didn't even know about that, but cesarean babies are at a distinct disadvantage for many other reasons. And they add insult to injury. I understand. We we wait an hour before we cut the cord. Um, we I refuse to cut a cord until the baby's at least an hour old for many many reasons. And of course, you can't keep a mother who's having a cesarean. You can't keep her open for any longer than necessary. But but if they could just wait a little bit, you know. <laughs> and uh, they tell us the baby will get jaundice. We wait an hour for all of our babies, and rarely have a baby who has jaundice. You know, etc. Um, and there's just a myriad of different things that can happen with major surgery and with separation of the baby and with breathing issues. And uh, if we can avoid it, we should absolutely avoid it. Um, and if we can't, then we're grateful that, you know, it exists, you know, but, but it's, it's just seen now as just another way to have a baby. It's just another way to have a baby, you know, and women, you know, want to schedule their C-sections around their work and around their, you know, birthdays. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not in that. I'm not in that thinking. That isn't, that isn't, you know, where I'm at, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And, and why do you think um, there is so little information given about the problems with C-sections or the, de or like the, the, the medical potential medical complications? Well, you know that a C-section from the hospital standpoint can, um, is, very, very lucrative. <laughs> Somebody once told me, uh, a doctor once told me, in fact, he was a the head of administration at a particular hospital. And he was taking my childbirth classes with his wife. And he told me some things off the record. One of the things he told me is how medical records are changed to make sure that they protect the doctor long after, you know, the event has occurred. But that's a story for another day as, as well. But for the hospital, it's very lucrative. Um, it has to do with time and money and power and sexual control. And there are so many different reasons why, from the doctors of the hospital standpoint, you know, this is the way to go. This is the way to go. It's like, you know, they have them lined up in some hospitals on gurneys waiting for their C-section. I was at a birth when I was a, I don't use the word doula. Um, I have a client who's Greek, and she said that doula is a very, very um, derogatory term, and uh, it means slave and servant, and um, 
she, so I use the term labor assistant. I use, don't use the term doula. I think words are very important. And of course, it's, of course, it's caught on everywhere. You have postpartum doulas and labor doulas and whatever. Um, but I was at a birth um, when I was still a labor assistant. And um, the woman was, had been pushing and, and laboring and whatever. And they said, no, you need a C-section. And they prepped her for a C-section. They came in and took her vitals and did what needed to be done. And then they had another C-section and they said to her, it's going to be another probably 45 minutes to an hour. And I looked at her and I said, were you born by C-section? And she said, no. I said, well, what that means is that every woman in your family, as I said before, has had babies. You can have a baby too. And so we got her, nobody was in the room at this point. They were out doing their other C-section. We got her squatting, we got her up, we got her walking. And she pushed her baby out in the 45 minutes when they would have taken her in to do a C-section. And I thought, this is our finest hour. This is so exciting, you know, but they had no faith in her and no faith in a woman's ability. One anesthesiologist said to me once that he felt, and he was a nice man, but he honestly felt like his he had done his work the best he could if the entire labor ward was quiet. If all of the women were anesthetized with epidurals and whatever else, and that if everybody was quiet and not making a whole lot of sounds and noises, that his, his work was done for the evening. And I thought, this is, you know, women make sounds when they're in labor and, and it's okay. And some women are quiet, but they shouldn't be quiet because the anesthesiologist wants them to be quiet and feels like that's the way he's doing the best job he can. I had one VBAC mama who, um, when the head of the baby was out, the head of the baby was out, and she said to her husband, I want to do this again. And her first child was seven years old because she had been afraid to have another baby. It had been such a miserable experience. And she said, I want to have another baby. And he said to her, do you think we could have this baby first? And then we'll talk about another baby. <laughs> and that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. She looked at him. I mean, the baby's head is out and she's just talking to him like, hey, we want to have another one. Let's have another one. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, most of what I do, Chaya, is so lovely. It is so, it is so deeply beautiful and peaceful and sexual and sensual and spiritual and powerful and whatever. And then there have been some times when being a midwife is not easy. It's not easy. You know, I had a mama not too long ago who had had five C-sections and was really wanting to have a normal delivery and she was coming from a relatively long distance so that we could work together. And my thought is that if you're healthy and you're motivated and um, your incision holds up to the point where you're going into labor, most likely it has proved its integrity and it will be okay. Um, and that we all take risks and we have to decide for each of us what risk is worth taking and what risk is not. And um, she was so excited about having this baby. And she called me. She doesn't live in my state. And she called me. She said, Nancy, I'm not feeling the baby move today. And I said, you need to go and get checked out immediately. And um, her baby was stillborn. And she did have a cesarean. They did deliver that baby by C-section. So not everything is um, perfect. <laughs> and we wonder who's running the show sometimes. But... We do the very, very best that we can. We do the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. No. You started talking about this before, but it's making me think again, what are things that women can do to help prepare and, and increase their likelihood for a VBAC? Oh, that's a good question. They're all good questions. Uh, let's see. Nutrition. Um, we talk a lot about nutrition. Many of the women who come to me late in the pregnancy, and I actually have quite a few people who come to me late in the pregnancy. Um, my take on it is that they've kindly finally smartened up and not, to, not, not to go to the hospital. <laughs> That's my take on it. Um, but, um, 
nobody's talked to them about nutrition. I'll say, what did you eat for breakfast? And they look at me and, you know, and, and what do you plan to have for dinner and what kind of snacks do you eat? Nutrition plays such an important role in, you know, how, how healthy the body is, how healthy the baby is, how strong the umbilical cord is, how strong the uterus is, et cetera. Um, so we talk a lot about that. And the general rule of thumb is whatever you would be proud to hand to your two-year-old, you can eat now because this baby will be two years old at some point down the road. And we tell them to the best of their ability, no white flour, no white sugar, um, no caffeine, go easy or eliminate dairy, go easy or eliminate gluten. You know, we, everybody has different, you know, ways of eating, but we, we make some general, um, recommendations. And, um, and that was number, that's one of the things, another thing that they can do is exercise. Um, not, you know, a thousand hours a day, but walking is wonderful. Swimming is wonderful. Those kinds of exercise are, exercises are really wonderful to prepare their body and to make them feel strong. And so that they'll sleep better getting rest. Um, another thing to do is to, um, I'm not big on vitamins, but that's another story again for another day. Um, I'm big on food, getting their, you know, it's because some of them are eating, you know, three or four different vitamins for breakfast, but that's all they're eating for breakfast. So I, you have to get it by food, staying hydrated. Um, and then choosing your care provider, <laughs> choosing your care provider really, really, you know, carefully. And um, we, uh, Raquel, who lives in Israel, and I are writing our book, and um, we finished a section on the myth of decent prenatal care in the world because women wait in waiting rooms and they get seen by somebody who may never have had a baby before. And they get seen by somebody who may or may not even be at their birth, who doesn't even know their name. And um, the appointments are usually uh, anywhere from, you know, six to nine or 10 minutes tops. Um, nobody talks to them about what they're frightened about or how they're preparing. They just uh, get them on a scale. Um, Use the Doppler. I'm not big on ultrasound either. I will not use a Doppler during the pregnancy, except in very rare circumstances. Um, they, um, <laughs> I'm frustrated. I'm really frustrated with the type of prenatal care that women are getting that they think is just sort of normal prenatal care. I don't do the oral glucose tolerance test. Um, that sickeningly sweet drink is not good for mothers and babies. It's not predictive. Um, nobody does any nutritional care unless they flunk the test and then they tell them not to eat too much fruit. Fruit is wonderful for you, you know. Um, they, I don't do the, um, the beta, beta strep testing, the GBS testing, because I don't. Um, <laughs> um, consider me a renegade if you like, but I don't see birth as a medical um, experience that needs to be tested all the time. There are occasionally times when a test can be helpful, which can, it can give you information that is useful. But most of the time, I've had so many situations with women who have called me and said, I had an ultrasound, and they don't think I have enough amniotic fluid, and they're going to induce my labor, you know, on Tuesday or whatever else. And I'll say, did anybody give you any suggestions for increasing the amniotic fluid? And they say, absolutely not. I had one woman who said to the doctor, I'm not going to have a C-section unless you do another test. And he couldn't believe that the fluid was completely normal when a few days earlier, you know, same thing with iron, that the iron is completely normal because somebody paid attention to what was going into the body and uh, made some changes. What I'm hearing you talk about a lot is that <sighs> That, that prenatal care seems like one big illusion. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like you're like you're you're doing your due diligence, you're being a good future mom by going to all these appointments and schlepping there, schlepping your spouse there probably as well. Um, and you know, sitting in the waiting room, getting weighed, getting told that you need to cut out fruit or whatever else, or that you flunked your glucose tolerance test. And, and, and none of those things are actually supremely helpful in guiding women to actually have healthy pregnancies and healthy births. I had um, several midwives who came to uh, be with me over the last few years from different countries, uh, Spain, Denmark, Finland, um, and um, they were horrified 
by the kinds of things that we do here. All of the tests that we do before the mom um, has the baby and then all of the things that we do to our babies once our babies are born. We put crud into their eyes. We inject them with vitamin K. Um, I, I won't give vitamin K if the couples want it, then they have to get it from a different midwife or we have to figure out from their pediatrician. Um, I, 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 I'm horrified. We give the babies um, hepatitis B shots. Hepatitis B is for um, IV drug users and for, for people who have multiple sexual partners. I say to them, do you think that your baby is going to have multiple sexual partners in the first X number of years of his or her life? Um, they just do so many things to these babies that are totally unnecessary. It makes me crazy. So uh, I want those babies in the mother's arms. We don't even talk to the babies when they're born. We send a lot of loving vibrations to the babies, but I want the babies to hear only the voices of the mommies and the daddies and the, um, uh, the immediate family. And uh, I don't want to add you know, to the confusion that this baby might feel when it's first born and hearing all kinds of things going on. So we are very quiet and respectful. And uh, after about an hour or so, I say to the mommy, can I say hi to your baby? <laughs> and we talk to the babies and welcome them into the world and we sing happy birthday. And, you know, it's really lovely. It's really very, very lovely. But it's just, it's just horrifying to me. And, you know, Chaya, I've been doing this for a long time. I always tell people um, I've been a midwife for 25 years. I was a labor support for 15 years before that. And I'm only 27 years old. So you do the math. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is I've been doing this for a very long time. And I honestly thought when we started many, many years ago, when I first became involved in birth work, there were so many amazing people. There still are. But um, I had um, Suzanne Arms and Sheila Kitzinger and, and Elizabeth Noble and Dr. Leo Sorger and, and Mendelssohn, Dr. Mendelssohn. There were so many, and, and um, Tom Brewer and Gail. There were so many, and I'm forgetting many of them, but we thought that within a matter of just a few years, women would open their ears and their eyes and their heart, and they would understand that having a baby it's the only time that baby is ever going to be born. There are no second chances. And so whenever possible, let's make it the most wonderful experience that it can possibly be. Babies are fully conscious, formed human beings who haven't get impressions from what's happening early on. And I thought by the time my daughters and my son went to were child of childbearing age, there'd be no more C-sections or maybe they'd be two or 3%. And that isn't the case. That is not the case. There are still places in the United States. I don't know what the um, what's happening in your country, but where there's 70% cesarean section rate at some hospitals and 50% and, you know, 82% and 49% and whatever it happens to be. To me, this is, this is just so sad. It's just so sad. It's just, and it changes mm -hmm. the mother. Not that I don't love my children when I had C-section. I love them fiercely, but it does make, it's a different mother hormonally. It's a different mother um, surgically. It's a different mother, you know, just emotionally. And it's a different baby as well, because the baby has had a different experience than babies are supposed to have. So we ought to rally and do everything we can to help babies be born normally and naturally. Yeah. 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 My effort. But um, when, when, when women do have, um, births that that felt not good to them that felt miserable to them like you described and it seems like that is a, is a, is, a, is, a, is a pretty decent percentage of women at this point yeah how can women overcome that and continue on with their motherhood and with their um maybe future future births but certainly continue on with motherhood what what have you seen to be helpful uh, you know, it's interesting that you asked that question because I tried on my own and I tried with some very highly recommended therapists to get over the depression and the upset that I felt about my C-section. And it wasn't until I met somebody when my son was seven years old that I really felt like I was getting the right kind of advice and the right kind of support so that I could really begin to integrate it in a new way and heal from it. So, um, uh, 
I started doing workshops on grieving and healing after a traumatic, disappointing, or upsetting birth experience. And on the one hand, I felt totally unqualified because I'm not a therapist, I'm not a social worker. But over those years of talking to people and going through it myself, I found that there were some things that could really help with the healing. And the workshops that we did together were fabulous. They were just wonderful. And um, the first thing that I did when they came to, um, I had them at my house, they were weekend workshops or three-day workshops or evening workshops. And the first thing we did was we wrote on a board all of the things that people said to us that really made us very angry <laughs> and very frustrated. Things that people, I think, thought they were saying that they thought it would be helpful helpful. Well, you know, at least you can have babies. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. But I didn't need to hear that in that moment. What I needed to hear is you're hurting. And that was not the experience that you wanted. So we have a whole bulletin board full of things that I promise them they won't hear at the workshop, and that nobody will say to them. And then we have another bulletin board of things that they wish that people had said to them or that they would like to hear whether it's you did such a beautiful job or whatever it happens to be, you know, or what a lucky baby to have a conscious mother, even though being conscious means that you feel things more deeply perhaps than you would like or than somebody else. Um, and then the uh, one next thing that we did was we all were able to tell our stories. I think what happens is that when you tell two or three or four people about your C-section, um, nobody else wants to hear it. And especially when the baby gets to be six or eight or 10 weeks old or longer than that. And so a lot of the story is left untold. And so one of the things that we did at the workshops is that we told our stories over and over and over again. And, you know, every time you tell a story, you're kind of, uh, peeling an onion, there's another layer, something that you didn't tell the first time around that's been sitting deep inside that all of a sudden comes out, you don't even know where it came from. So um, telling, having somebody who's willing to listen without judgment, and without a lot of interruption, and believe it or not, I can talk to people without interrupting. <laughs> and so having people tell stories and, and listening and then asking and tell me more about that and tell me more about that so that they have. Then we did something called a library. And I don't think we have time today to talk about the library. Maybe we'll meet again someday and talk about more healing modalities, so to speak. But um, when a woman has a cesarean, it's like she has one book in her library, just one book. And so it's always the C-section book. It's always a C-section book. And so one of the things that we did at the workshop was we developed other books. So we would do, an, a, a, we would have different books in the library. So they didn't have to only pull out just their C-section book. They can pull out another book that's a story about um, what might have happened if they didn't have a C-section or it sounds a little crazy just to kind of throw this out, but I have to tell you, having a library of different books and different memories is is very useful. It's really it's really lovely. Um, another thing that we did was a recreation of the birth because so many of the mothers, um, one of the things that was really upsetting to them, understandably, was not just the surgery and the C-section and the disappointment and, and the exhausted labor, whatever, but was that their babies were taken away from them. And that's a hurt that hurts for a very long time. I once had somebody come to my workshop who was 62 years old, whose child was like 40 something. And she had heard about the workshop and uh, she still had uh, feelings about what had happened when her baby was taken away from her. And so we do a recreation of the birth, but this time nobody takes the baby away from the mama. And we do it in a wide variety of ways. One of the ways is that if she has a young baby, um, she brings the baby with her to the workshop and we get the baby naked and we get the mother partially naked, as naked as she wants to be. And we do skin to skin and she gets to touch the baby in ways that she wasn't able to those first hours and gets to talk to the baby in a supportive environment. Um, we have mothers whose children are too old to bring to the workshop and they bring pictures of their babies they bring stuffed animals we've had all kinds of <laughs> interesting um, symbols <laughs> of that baby and 
again, it may sound kind of crazy or it may not sound like something somebody wants to do, but we've had some amazing, wonderful things that have happened when the mothers have been given the time and the respect and the energy and the support and the love to spend an hour or two or more if necessary, recreating those moments, but this time having the opportunity to have that baby immediately put into her waiting arms. I I could cry just thinking about it because I've seen so many. It was done with me when my son was seven. And I've done this with other people. And it, it makes a tremendous difference. So that when I see my son now, who's all grown up, like on his birthday, um, the first few years of his life, I just got depressed. I had to kind of hide it and, you know, make him a birthday cake and play games and everything. But all I could think of was you were not born the way that I wanted you to be. And then after I met this particular woman who did some of these unusual and different kind of healing things with me on his birthday, I not only thought about the fact that yes, he was born by C-section, but I also remembered the day when we did our recreation and I said, honey, I said, you don't have to get naked, but I have to be able to hold you and tell you all the things that I didn't tell you when you were first born. And he said, how long is this going to take? And I said, how about 15 minutes? And he negotiated with me and said, how about nine? And then he said, if I do this with you, if I pretend I'm a newborn baby, he said, can I get an expert builder Lego set? I would have bought him (laughs) anything. to have him stay in my arms for seven to nine minutes. And when he was in my arms and I was counting his toes and, and, and telling him how beautiful I thought he was and everything, he started to talk to me. And I said to him, honey, you're a newborn baby for these next seven minutes and you cannot talk to me. And I said, if you want that expert builder Lego set, you have just got to be a newborn baby for the next six or seven minutes. So So we did a lot of different things. And I think there are some lovely, lovely things that women can do on their own or together. One of my favorite books is an older book by Kathy Romeo and Claudia Panuthos, and it's called Ended Beginnings. And there's a chapter in there on C-section, and there's a chapter on just healing from disappointing birth experiences. And I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. So if you can get it, I think it's not in print anymore, but it's a lovely, lovely book. Um, I love this. I love some of those ideas. I mean, just as a psychologist, I can say that the just just sharing your story in a non-judgmental space and saying it over and over again, exactly like you said, makes new meanings. It helps us to kind of get it out of our heads and into um, a way that we can kind of think through things in a way that helps us to like reprocess and and. There's art, there's art therapy that can be done. There's music, there's all kinds of different things that can be done. And we just kind of did these things. Um, somebody would have an idea at the workshop and we would go with it. And if it worked, we were all happy. And if it didn't, we just kind of laughed and started something different. But you get people together who have had a similar experience. Everybody's experience is slightly different, of course, but you get some of the people who are wanting. And when you heal, when you help somebody to heal, you're also healing yourself. It's kind of a circle. And uh, I remember one woman came to the workshop and she almost apologized. She said, I didn't have a C-section, but I had a miserable, miserable birth. And as it happened, she had probably 35 to 50 stitches in her vagina. So we said she had a vaginal cesarean. She couldn't make love for almost two years after her uh, baby was born. And she was certainly quote allowed in the in the workshop but what we said is that you don't have to have the same experience as someone else you don't have to have as bad an experience or worse an experience to be able to be here and to listen and to love and we heal together we we just heal together yeah yeah, yeah. you talked a little bit about um respect for women and and um I don't know why I was just reading this today. <laughs> I was reading, I don't remember where, but somebody was saying something about how like at the hospital tour that one of the nurses said, oh, all women lose their dignity in birth. And um, and it just stuck out to me because I, I think that is the kind of like the mainstream um, message that birth is scary. We don't talk about birth after it happens. 
we don't talk about it really before it happens either that much. Um, and you just kind of got to like push through. <laughs> you know, you're making me laugh, but with tears in my heart, because we have a chapter where um, it's uh, things that doctors or medical people or medical midwives, medwives have said to women um, that um, you just wouldn't believe that they would have said one doctor uh, at the six week checkup said, um, you can't have sex yet, but you can vacuum. <laughs> Those kinds of things that you just wouldn't even believe, you know. But I remember you you reminded me, uh, we were at a birth in April, so just a couple months ago, and um, first baby, water birth um, at home, and she was terrified of pooping during labor. And we said, you know, it's just something that happens. The baby needs to make room, you know, and just anything that happens to me. And she, and when she pooped, we actually had a musical instrument. We played a song and she laughed and she laughed and she laughed. And instead of feeling like there was no dignity, it is a moment of I'm having a baby and the midwives are singing and I just pooped and nobody cares, you know? So I don't think women lose their dignity at all. I think it's in a sense, it's, it's a finest moment it's just a finest moment it's unbelievable I've been to lots of births and I say to the mamas who come to me if I cry when you are giving birth to your baby um, there's nothing wrong I'm just moved um, because if there was something wrong I wouldn't be crying I would be acting so don't worry if I start to shed some tears it's 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 so amazing it's so beautiful can a cesarean birth be beautiful? I think it can be when it's necessary and there's a lot of love and support in the room and it's really the right thing for that particular situation. I think it can be made to be a sacred and beautiful experience, but ordinarily it's just an unnecessary and preventable experience in the lifetime of a woman. I, I think that the perspective that women lose their dignity in birth, it, it's so... Um, it's, it sounds like it's coming from the opposite perspective from reality, which is that a woman really actually becomes a mother through this process. That's like the most right. dignity giving. And actually I think like most can be like the most regal and amazing thing. Um, if you're viewing birth as this incredible thing that a woman is capable of doing and you're able to see her in her glory, like see this as like, wow, you are amazing rather than, you know, we'll just clean that disgusting mm -hmm. thing up for you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was with a woman uh, years and years ago when I was still attending some hospital births as a labor assistant and she was 43 having her first baby. And my, my comment to her was your body knew how to conceive this baby. It knew how to grow this baby. It's going to make milk for this baby. So of course it knows how to birth the baby as well. And somebody walked in and looked at her chart and she said, you know, older mothers, really don't generally have easy births. And from that point on, things just kind of deteriorated. She was seven to eight centimeters at that point. She was really holding on to her own. She was beautiful. She was strong. But they kept sort of, you know, knocking her down because she was over 40. Of course, they knocked down 20-year-olds as well. So <laughs> in some respects, you can't win. But the things that we say to pregnant women are just so important. And people don't seem to realize that they... And most of the nurses at the hospital um, have had miserable births themselves. One nurse walked in and said, I had three C-sections and I have really beautiful, smart kids. Well, I'm glad she has beautiful, smart kids, but was that appropriate, you know, for somebody who wanted to have a natural birth? So I don't know. We have a long way to go, don't we, Kaya? <laughs> yeah. You know, we started out by saying like, you know, what's the kind of the history of VBAC and what's going on now? And I think you, you brought up that we still got a long way to go. Yeah, <laughs> we have a long way to go. But you know what, we still have to do what we do, because there would be an even longer way if those of us who are involved in this birth work, um, if we weren't doing what we were supposed to do. Oh, and language, someday we'll talk about language, you know, mucus plug. I mean, what woman who wants to feel the full ripeness of her femininity and wants to feel really open and clean and clear and delicious. She wants to have um, a, a, a plug of snot in her vagina. She wants to have this glob of 
globby stuff. No, we call it baby gel or birth gel and all of these words that we use, you know, you're, what station is she at? She's not at a station. She's not taking a train anywhere, you know? The, all the words we use are, are very derogatory and, and speak volumes for how we view women and birth. Yeah. 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 I could keep talking to you all day long. I could keep talking forever to you as well. (laughs) And of course, as soon as we hang up, I will think of a thousand things that I should have said or could have said a lot more eloquently than I did. But um, we do what we can each moment of the day and move on from there. (laughs) I always learn from you and I really appreciate you. We learn from one another, my dear. We learn from one another for sure. Thank you for what you're doing on the planet. Thank you. Um, It gives me great hope that there are women who are significantly younger than I am who are those who understand the importance of this it's how people get born makes a difference it does make a difference yeah yeah uh, yeah (laughs) I have a big go ahead not that like I how people are born makes a big difference in how this world works and and If we keep on on keeping this topic behind closed doors and just keep on, you know, whipping out birth trauma after birth trauma after birth trauma, it's it's affecting society. It certainly is. Like I I have a big, big sign on my car. I mean, you can see it from really far away on the back window. And I see people looking at it when I'm driving. It says a gentle birth lasts a lifetime. So, and then it says midwife mobile. (laughs) Listen, I can be, you are lovely. You are wonderful. Um, I hope this was okay. I think of a thousand things that I might've said or could have said. Much love, much love. Bye-bye.